0: And find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudi Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're going to travel to Berlin and we're going to talk to co-founders of Mondu. And uh, Malte and Philip founded Mondu to help SMBs or small mes- medium businesses or SME, small medium enterprises, as sometimes people call it, to have an easier life and focus on what's really important. And that is to serve their customers rather than to th- worry about finance and uh, what's in the background. So we're going to find out more what's cooking there they just raised a bunch of money again so we're also going to find out what are they planning to do with it welcome Philippe and malte how are you today
1: great thanks for having us rudy it's a pleasure to
0: be here yeah absolutely it's a huge pleasure thanks for having us great stuff thank you for taking the time now what are your backstories and because you are co-founders which is great i read somewhere research that vcs they prefer teams of founders right versus a solo founder some people say that it doesn't matter other people say it's the risking so the key thing is though how did you find each other and decided to start a business together
2: I think it's a great question, Rudy, and Philip and I go back more than 13 years now. We've been working together for the last 13 years. Philip, we originally met through Philip's sister, by the way, and then we didn't see each other for some time. After university, Philip worked a little bit at JP Morgan. I worked a little bit at Boston Consulting Group in the Berlin office, Uh, and then we actually joined forces for the first time to build a company called MyBrands, which was a fashion uh, e-commerce company in the off-price segment. We sold that company to Zalando back in 2010 spent some time with Zalando integrating our business. And then we realized that we really liked the Zalando business model, but didn't necessarily want to stay there. And that's when we decided to go to Brazil to found a business called My. Uh, My no, da Fiji, Um, uh, which would become, over the years, a leading fashion and lifestyle e-commerce company in South America. In the end, we had around 3,000 employees across our four core geographies, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, and Colombia. And Fiji, in the end, went public on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange in 2019 uh, via the Global Fashion Group. And this is when we then also, in the end of 2020, decided to actually step down from executive roles uh, and hand on uh, or pass on leadership to the next generation of leaders to focus on new projects on the one hand, but also to move back to Europe. And that's when we thought very hard about what we would do next and came up with the idea to found Mondu.
0: Oh, wow. So that's quite an exotic story, right? The crossing the continents and everything. Great. So what is the problem that you're solving at Mondo?
2: We are really here to drive innovation in the B2B payment space through better technology. When you look at how businesses transact among each other, they typically do that based on net terms, at least in the offline world. So if you ask, for example, 100 companies in Germany, how would you like to pay for something, for example, online, 95 will say, I, want to like, I would like to pay an invoice. And actually, the concept of an invoice it's dating back to 5000 BC. Obviously back then the concept was a little bit different, not the concept but the format was a little bit different it was clay disks. Now it's in today's times it's even e invoices, etc. but the concept is very similar. And that's really what we are trying to do. as B2B trade is moving online now, we are trying to solve for first bring that experience of paying with deferred payment methods online. to the digital world. That means that we want to enable B2B merchants and B2B marketplaces to offer their buyers, their customers, the possibility to pay with deferred payment methods. And that's on the one hand net terms, so net 15, net 30, net 60, net 90, but with installment payments. And on the other hand, we want to also try and support companies that are still in the offline world, have still offline processes, for example, in sales, either inside sales or field sales, to then also digitize their processes with regards to payment uh, to really enter into a new world where processes are smoother, where processes are less frictionless, uh, less uh, uh, full of friction but to bring them really to the next to the future. If you
0: All right. So is it about automation of invoicing and collecting or what is really the gist of it?
2: Yeah, it's exactly. It's on the one hand, it's bringing what's already existing in the offline world to the online world to really enable merchants and marketplaces to offer these deferred payment options in now also in for digital transactions, and, it's, and on the other hand, really try and bring the more complex and high-value transactions with customers in the offline world also to a more digital and automated way.
1: And Rudy, if I may say. I think it goes a little bit beyond automation in a sense that there's a significant challenge when you do business online, which is you don't know who you're speaking to, right? So there's a there's a natural issue with, with the anonymity of, of transactions online. And the big challenge that we have is to really understand who the counterpart is, to authenticate businesses. And whereas in the B2C world, you're typically talking to individuals in the B2B world, you're talking to in Germany, for instance, at least 14 different legal forms, which you need to be able to clearly identify to understand what your counterpart is. So there's a lot of IP in that, that you need to solve for and in order to be able to transact online and extend terms to businesses. And we do this, of course, in real time. So it's not like we know beforehand who the customer is that is interacting with us. We need to find that out in the checkout in a consumerized way. to really authenticate the business in a few steps without asking too many questions, without imposing too many restrictions, and also without harming the entire process. And by that, also optimizing for conversion rates.
0: I see. And of course, if you are in Germany, it's a little bit obvious to you, right? Because many people talk about the country built on small and medium businesses, right? And Mittelstand and all that. But let's paint a picture for people from outside Germany, what is the size of the opportunity? Why is this problem worth solving? So if you are going to do this for SMBs or SMEs, how much value are you creating for them? And therefore, can you give us a bit of a hint? How much are they willing to pay? This Obviously, this is painful and it should be fixed, but it costs money to fix it.
1: That's a very good question. So when Malte and I, we first thought about the next thing that we wanted to do, we, of course, thought very hard about this. And we were very clear that we wanted to have a meaningful opportunity. Otherwise you could have stayed in our previous uh, roles and B2B payments. And there's a consensus about this is probably one of the largest opportunities there is in the world. So businesses transact yearly about 125 trillion US dollars. So that's a lot of money. And when you look into B2B e-commerce, that in 2021 was about 20 trillion US dollars. That is about four times more than B2C. And we believe that that opportunity is going to grow over the next couple of years. So both B2B payments as well as B2B e-commerce are going to grow a lot and in particular B2B e-commerce. And at the same time, as Malta pointed out, there's a significant issue for businesses who want to transact online because most of the businesses they try to buy from allow them to pay either in advance or through credit cards, but they are actually used to deferred payments and so we believe that there is probably a 200 billion dollar market opportunity just in what we're doing yeah and so what is it compared to today today it's probably just a few billion that are being transacted and we're talking about a market that comes from nothing will probably by around 2025 be a 200 billion market and that's why so many people are so excited about this so that's the first part on on the opportunity and now how can we so we of course charge something for that service, but it's not comparable from what you would expect from the B2C world, where the traditional players are charging anywhere between three and 5%, sometimes even more. We have to be more competitive because margins also in businesses are lower, but at the same time, payments are also not settled through through credit cards, but typically through bank-to-bank transactions and direct debit and the tickets are higher. So we have to be more efficient in the way that we charge our partners And that's why our rates are lower and are rather comparable, I would say, to what you would see in regular factory environments. And always, uh, I would also say, competitive compared to any alternatives that you would see in the offline world.
0: I see. All right. Understood. So yours is obviously a B2B business. So it is quite different from B2C fintechs that newspapers sometimes prefer to write about because maybe it's easier for readers to associate with. But some commentators have started saying, and I'll put them in the notes from the Financial Times, started saying that maybe that unbundling of fintech services or financial services done by fintechs have gone too far, and now managing money is too complicated. So in your case, this is B2B, but still, if you were to react to this, I would be quite keen to to hear your thoughts because it could also be that, all right, I have a small Uh, medium enterprise, and I will still need my bank account. I will still need a loan. It doesn't seem like you provide financing here. I will still need my office subscription and all kinds of other subscriptions. And then you come in to automate all of this, but it's yet another service or app In the middle isn't that making my life even more complicated similarly as for b2c fintechs if you now need an app for every little thing as well maybe you can go crazy
1: no it's i think it's a fair question rudy so i guess you could say this about any innovation right in any sector and i'm sure that there have been a few innovations in fintech that have you know ultimately caused reduced transparency and might have in fact generated products that to some extent also harm certain groups of customers in a way. But at the same time, those innovations wouldn't have product market fit and wouldn't be growing if there wasn't a clear demand for that, at least in most cases, and if participants saw some kind of value. And let me just give you an example. If you just look at the early days of e-commerce, there were certainly a few cases, I would say, that the service levels were actually inferior to the offline world and where some consumers were harmed. But I think today, few people would argue that the long-term impact of e-commerce on service levels has been positive, right? So I think the same thing is true for fintechs. So on average, they will result in both higher customer satisfaction and ultimately efficiency. In some cases, there might be a few exceptions. And so we at Mondo, we're not optimizing for the short term goal here. And we also don't intend to do anything that doesn't make sense for the customer. For instance, introduce hidden fees or intransparent terms. In fact, I think we are here to actually our bias lives and our bias are businesses. That means the seamlessness of the process, the the terms of the process. Those are things we want to improve for sure. And now to your point, so what is the alternative really uh, to what our product offers? So you could say, yeah, there's of course a bank account and businesses could get a credit there and ultimately get some kind of supply chain financing. But the truth is that for most banks, a transaction of a thousand euros or 500 euros is actually not interesting. They will typically provide some kind of loan. Starting at 100,000, 300,000 for businesses, but for SMBs in particular, you know, the smaller tickets are actually also something they need to care about, right? So we're offering a product that doesn't really exist in the offline world. So building something that's complementary and that is very relevant for businesses, and that's why we're seeing so much traction also.
0: I see. understand. I like your point about lacking product market fit, right? Startups can be trying it for a while. So you see an app there, but if it's not there in a year, then you know what happened, right? So the customer is the king and and customers decide whether they like it or not, but they may be an attempt in the meantime. All right. So this is clear. We talked a little bit about your products and services already, but let's paint the picture even a little bit more. So say I'm that small, medium business in Berlin, and I don't need a 100,000 euro loan. I need a 20,000 euro loan, and I need some other pain points sorted. How does that work? How do you actually find these sort of small clients, right? Because it's uh, different than B2C. On the other hand, it's different than enterprise sales going to big banks. So how do you find them and get them on board? And then once you do this, then. What is the process, right? So they may have these needs. Do they get an API from you? You have. Do you need an integration? Yes or no. Is this something they can just install from their office, or how does that work? How do you work with clients?
1: Yeah. So I think the first thing that need to needs to be clear is that we have two main stakeholders that we interact with, right? So the first one is of course our merchant base. Here we're talking about merchants that sell their own products or we're talking about B2B marketplaces. And then on the other side we have the buyers. And the buyers are typically SMBs, yeah. So small and medium businesses. On the merchant side we have actually medium to large businesses that are interacting with us. And Malte can comment a little bit on how we get those customers. But as an SMB, and I think that's where your question is going, what is really the value proposition that we offer? And as a buyer, we ultimately allow you to use deferred payment methods in the checkout. So that is, as Malta pointed out, 30, 60, 90 days net terms. And those payments are settled through bank to bank transactions or direct debit. Um, most recently, we've also launched an installment offering. Uh, and by that, we're actually the first company in Germany to do this for business to business transactions. And the challenge here really is to do this in a very seamless way. In a, we call it a consumerized checkout. And that means that we try to avoid means of authentication that are too invasive. So in fact, we try to avoid, for instance, open banking integrations where we ask for credentials and ask for businesses to lock in so we can see all the cash flow. We try to do this in a very seamless way so people can really transact fast without having to input too much information into our engine.
2: And I think to the first part of your question also, how do we, how do we find these merchants? So I think it's important to understand also who are our key customers, right? And Philip mentioned, obviously there are two stakeholders on the one hand, the merchants and on the other hand, the business buyers that transact with our payment method and ultimately are the customers of the merchants. And I think focusing maybe on the first group of merchants. So we obviously embed our Mondo payment methods in the checkouts of B2B companies. And when you think about a B2B company, those can be manufacturers of products that are sold to other businesses. They can be wholesalers who, by definition, obviously sell B2B. And then there are also B2B marketplaces that connect buyers with merchants or vendors or sellers, however you may call them, who themselves are obviously companies that sell B2B. And these merchants, they really come from very different verticals, right, from the beauty industry, to construction material, to electronics, to timber. So it's really a variety. And our product has resonated really well across a huge variety of, of verticals. And I think what really sticks out for them in terms of value proposition also is that they can now offer their buyers deferred payment options, which we already talked about, net, net terms as well as installments, and that ultimately leads, leads to higher sales. So, we typically see very significant improvements in conversion rate and also average order values, which obviously leads then to higher revenue. And we can provide this to, to those merchants while still um, um, basically taking over the financial burden as well as the operational burden because we shield the merchants from any default risk. We pre finance the merchant, we collect basically the money according to the payment schedule from their buyers and pay merchants right away. And from an operational point of view, we take over all the operational processes that come basically after the customer has paid, whether it's the invoices, whether it's a potential collection proceedings, or even basically recovery. We take care of all of this. This is really the value proposition also to our merchants who are our key customers at first. And the way we find them is really through very different ways, right? And this goes then to our distribution strategy, which is based on our commercial teams, but also our marketing teams that that create inbound leads, et cetera, et cetera.
0: I see. So some of the elements of your value proposition you mentioned sound like BMPL, BMPL for B2B. How does that work? How is that different from BMPL for B2C?
2: Yeah, I think as a matter of fact, we believe that the B2B by now, pay later and B2C by now, pay later are rather different things. And there are two elements to this, right? One is the market size. Philip mentioned this already. We're talking about a huge market opportunity on the B2B side, and it's actually even a bigger opportunity than from what we see on the B2C side. We think that in the midterm, there's a 200 billion euro opportunity, while B2C by now, pay later was at around 100 billion last year. And the second element is really market dynamics in B2B. And we believe that to a certain extent, the market dynamics in B2B are also a little bit more favorable. Yes, it's still to a certain extent, buy now, pay later on both sides, but there are really a lot of underlying differences. And maybe I can point out a few of these market dynamics that are a little bit different on on, between B2B and B2C. And I would start maybe with customers. As I mentioned earlier, paying with net terms is super common practice in B2B, right? 50 to 60% of transactions are really done with net terms overall. So on the B2B side, we don't really need to educate customers as to the benefits of, of paying basically with net terms. We really only need to, in the first step, replicate what's already happening offline to the online world. Then... I think substitute products. So what, is, what are the competing products? What are the alternatives to buy now, pay later in the B2B space? And Philip already mentioned this a little bit. You could think about, okay, instead of integrating right away in the point of sale, you factor invoices right after that obviously creates a lot of friction. You could think about paying with credit cards also in, in, in the B2B context, but there's obviously a huge downside to this, which is credit cards are typically very expensive for merchants. So also the substitute products are not as clear cut as in B2C, where paying with credit card and other payment methods is a lot more common. The third point where I would make is also competition. Yeah. So last time I checked, I think just in in Europe, there are 170 B2C buy now pay later players in the B2B space, obviously this is a much less crowded space. And at the same time, B2B e-commerce is actually much more fragmented, so you have less, you have more merchants and more marketplaces in B2B um, dividing uh, basically that's the B2B e-commerce market. And this means basically in a nutshell that there are fewer players in B2B from a binopulator perspective going after more merchants. And this, for example, uh, also means that there's less price pressure on binopulator players, uh, basically building a more sustainable uh, basis also. And then I think there's also... The topic around regulation, yeah. in B2C, in general, con- I think consumer lending faces a lot of scrutiny lately. I think in general, businesses are considered much more financially literate, and that's why lawmakers will also probably impose less regulation on, on, on B2B by an operator place, and you will have very, a very different environment and different dynamics here as well. So, while on the surface, B2B by an and B2C by an seem very similar, and obviously the mechanics of it of them work very similarly below it in terms of market size, but also in terms of market dynamics, we really see a lot of differences. And actually those differences excite us a lot because we believe that the, in the B2B context, we are to a certain amount. Uh, actually. So
0: this was a great industry analysis, you know, that, that's very helpful. Now, let's talk about these marketplaces as well, because I imagine that the B2B space, of course, works or used to work differently than a B2C, right? Because you place orders in bigger sizes. So it was worthwhile for you to have a purchasing manager to negotiate things and to call people and things like that, right? But when you have more and more people who would like to start their business and these businesses are very small, this is not efficient. So I think that's where the need for B2B marketplaces come in. So do you think that they are also on the rise, that they are becoming mainstream rather than just nice to have and being complementary to the good old ways of doing business in the B two B space.
2: Yeah, yeah, we absolutely believe so that that they're becoming mainstream. If you look at the data sources today, we mentioned this number now a few times. B two B e commerce, for example, in Germany, is three hundred billion euros big, and one third of this volume today is done via B two B marketplaces or platforms, and two thirds via e commerce websites, right? Regular merchants. That means that marketplaces in the B2B e-commerce context are really, very relevant. However, on the other hand, we believe that actually in a few years, marketplaces will, instead of represent one third, they will actually represent two thirds of B2B e-commerce. And this is uh, something where we draw a parallel from the B2C e-commerce world, where, you know, also originally merchants were predominant and then marketplaces, you gained a lot more market share along the years. And this is really because marketplaces and platforms tend to have network effects, a lot of economies of scale as well, that then drives for them dynamics in in terms of customer acquisition, which which is a lot cheaper there. And then they can obviously acquire a lot more traffic, a lot more customers, which then makes it more interesting also for more merchants to list on those marketplaces. And hence you have a flywheel. And we believe that this trend yeah, will that are let's say this result that we've seen in B2C e-commerce will all ultimately also appear on the B2B side, and that's why we believe it's obviously super important to also focus already now on B2B marketplaces, create solutions for those, so that you are early in the game.
0: Wonderful. These are all great thoughts and great plans, right? But sometimes the entrepreneur's journey is challenging, and you have lived in Latam, and you. Maybe manage to grow your businesses and sell them, even though there, were, there was economic instability, political instability. And now we have a generation of founders that maybe haven't experienced a downturn when they were running a business yet. So what would be your best advice? How to manage a business or how to grow a business despite a challenging economic backdrop?
1: Uh, Malt and I, we've been working again together for many years. And when we went to Brazil in 2010, just a few months before we arrived, there was actually a cover on, on The Economist on Brazil. It said Brazil takes off. And we started our business early 2011. In 2013, there was another cover on The Economist. It said, has Brazil blown it? And so it feels like we've gone through a lot of economic ups and downs in the last years. And, and also the sectors that we were involved in were hot, and then they were not so hot anymore. So we ultimately had to learn to just build a sustainable business. And I think that's what every founder should try to do, not strive for just an exit, but ultimately build something that creates value for all the stakeholders, including also society. And what a downturn ultimately means, is that it forces you to manage your resources more efficiently. And also, it forces you to produce tangible Results fast. And the prerequisite for that is to truly and fully understand your business. That means the underlying drivers and the output you want to generate to ultimately achieve achieve success. And this might sound very obvious, but I would argue that most young companies focus more on the output than on the input. They focus on growth instead of actually driving customer satisfaction. They focus on the bottom line instead of understanding the underlying drivers and the trends within each PL line. And they focus on the cash balance, instead of understanding how a balance sheet dynamics drive the cost, cost conversions uh, cash conversion cycle. At least when I see pictures in Malta and I, we sometimes also act as, as angels. Rarely you will see a young company talking about the balance sheet, right? At least I haven't seen it many times. And so. The first step, I would say, is to really truly understand your business and its drivers. And then the second is to have an agile mindset, to really iterate and learn at all times, both when prioritizing your actions as well as as individuals when, when you reflect on your behaviors, right? If one thing is certain today is that the world is changing fast and that actually nothing is certain, so we need to also act accordingly. That requires really fundamentally humbleness not being too overconfident about a project but also about yourself and that means also we need to work on mvps to test certain hypotheses accept feedback from our customers the team and our stakeholders to drive also on behaviors so that would be my piece of advice
0: yeah and then i think otherwise just keep calm and carry on right
1: yeah exactly right every crisis never waste a good crisis as i say right it's always an opportunity it's an opportunity to learn more about your business, to decelerate certain things that maybe before didn't make any sense and focusing on building something that's really sustainable for the long term.
0: Brilliant. So before we go, just have two easy questions for you. First one, do you have a favorite business book that you can recommend that could be helpful for founders or other people who are interested in fintech to read upon
1: i guess every topic has has a book right i wouldn't say there is one book that fits all it depends if you're a very young startup there's one thing if you are struggling with hr topics there's another thing so i think one of the core principles that we have also at Mondo, and we had also before is that we never want to stop learning and there are probably fewer ways to learn more than through great books so this is why we also we always share also lead reading list with the New Modern Years Joining the Company. Uh, some of the books we recommend, if you think about general management and strategy, Jim Collins has a few good ones, Good to Great, Built to Last, Turning the Flywheel. Then there are a few ones on how to set goals. For instance, uh, John derr published one a few years back on, on that, on OKR specifically, Measure What Matters, it's called. One book that we liked a lot because it, it talks about shared consciousness, how to align a team and how to motivate a team also, and to accomplish results is from Stanley McChrystal, Team of Teams. There's a classic also from Andy Grove that talks a lot about input and output KPIs, how to achieve them, and how to think a very systematic way about outputs. It's high output management and many others. We have actually a, a reading list that we, again, we share, and we have also physical books lying around in the office. And it's probably one of the most underrated things, from my perspective, in many organizations. You can really get an unfair advantage if you read a lot of books. But what I would recommend is try to find a use case and then read the book. Yeah, Uh, Because otherwise, those books are very hard to digest. And uh, that's why I said uh, for every occasion, there's a different book.
0: All right. Brilliant. And great that you mentioned Jim Collins. I did a micro course on Emeritus Insights on Build to Last. This is basically... I, a few videos with some key insights inspired by the book, which talks about how to build and manage visionary companies, right? And these are the companies that are built to last. And they last more than a couple of Fridays. So last question is, what's the best way to reach out? And what kind of people would you like to hear from most?
2: Yeah, maybe I can take that one. Look, best way, I guess, is always either by email. You can reach us on either malte or Philip at mondo.ai. Or just reach out on LinkedIn. We are, if you are a merchant and you would like to try our payment method, you're super welcome to obviously get in contact. Professionals that are looking for a career in a young, but I think very professional startup that with a great vision, please reach out as well. Partners of any sort, obviously, also super welcome, especially on the technology side. And then, and then, obviously, just people of the in the ecosystem, right, to to exchange exchange knowledge. As Philip mentioned, we never stop learning, and I think you a great way to also inspire yourself beyond books is to just talk to the people, right? And that's what we really like. And so, feel free to reach out.
0: Thank you so much, and good luck to you and Mondu.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for having us, Rudy.
2: Thanks for pleasure. having us.
0: Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests or how to make this podcast better for you, Please email us at info at voiceofintech.com. Happy to hear from you. Thank you.